Welcome to the Content and Media Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the Content and Media team at Nuco, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Content and Media Matters podcast. Your hosts today are me, Tegan Bellaney, Managing Consultant, and Tim Meredith, Business Manager. And we're really delighted to be joined by Stephen Stewart, Chief Operating Officer at Take One. Growing up, Stephen had actually wanted to be a vet, but thankfully for us, he came into the broadcast media industry. In 2004, he found himself Head of Operations for the BBC before moving to Red Bee Media, where he was Head of Playout Services and a Senior Account Director. Stephen has also had spells as Director of Business Development for Deluxe Entertainment and moved back to the BBC, where on his second stint, he was the VP of Global Operations for BBC Worldwide. Furthermore, he was Global Head of Operations at Myriad, Interim Head of Delivery at Otro, and spent the last three years as Chief Operations Officer for Take One. Stephen, when not working, thoroughly enjoys walking his dogs by the river or enjoying a good uh, company at restaurants with friends. But when not doing this, he can be found either as an advisory board member for RISE or vice chair for the Royal Television Society. This all goes to show that we are very lucky to have found time in his busy schedule to have him as a guest on our podcast. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it is such a pleasure. And to get us started, we always like to ask our guests, how and why did you first get into the content and media industry? Well, it was some time ago, and it was radio that got me in. Um, uh, work experience on the Timmy Mallet show on BBC Radio Oxford. If anyone remembers Timmy Mallet. Mallet. Mallets, mallets, and it was called Timmy on the Tranny at the time. So I sat in the corner writing down on a bit of paper all the records he played, and that sort of got me hooked. Um, then that got me interested in radio. I was actually studying to be a photographer and uh, ended up with a job at a local newspaper. Um, one of the things I ended up doing as part of that was going to the local radio station to take pictures of anyone and anyone who came along to promote their records. So that got me back into radio and ended up with a job at the radio station. And being local radio, you get to do a bit of everything. So I did presenting through to production, through to operating news. Um, and then to cut a long story short, I saw an ad in Broadcast Magazine when it was still a magazine that got printed on paper that you had to go to the news agent to get. And Channel 4 were advertising for something rather grand sounding called a network director. But the job description sounded quite similar to what I was doing. So. I ended up at Channel 4, so Channel 4 gave me a, a, a chance to get into the industry. So straight from radio to Channel 4, I think I was very lucky. So that's that's how I got into the industry. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to um, pass over to Tim to dig in a little bit further to, to some of those some of those past uh, jobs that you've worked. So excluding Timmy Mallet, um, <laughs> who or what would you say has been the, the biggest influence in your career coming up in, in media and broadcast? I think it depends in which stage, because there have been people along the way who've taken a chance, I would think. So, uh, for instance, at Channel 4, I was untried. I'd never worked in television. I just worked in local radio and I was copywriting and making commercials latterly. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a, a lady in the industry called Pam Masters 
Um, and she gave me a chance. She gave me a job at Channel 4 and I, I learnt back in the day at Channel 4 in, in TV, uh, you got to do a bit of everything. You, you got to make promos and you got to uh, be a technical director playing out the channel and you got to do uh, read-throughs with the announcers. So you got to do a bit of everything and program planning. Nowadays, that's all very separate, all very distinct yeah. um, specialisms. But back in the day, we, we ran a four or five week cycle where we all got to do a bit of that. So that was such a good training ground. So I think Pam Masters would be up there and my direct boss at Channel 4, another um, amazing mentor called Adam Hume, um, who just took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. And uh, that set me well in the industry. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and kind of on that same point, what have been the sort of the, the biggest changes you've seen in the industry throughout your career? Because obviously you've been, you know, radio to television, television's got bigger, television's got loads of things have changed. What, what would you say is the, the biggest change for you? Oh, the biggest change? I think it's the way technology has made it easier for some of these really difficult uh, things that used to be done, like play out used to be such a big thing. You used to have to build massive broadcast centers, spend millions of pounds of capital, have hundreds of people running channels. I think the fact that now you can run a channel probably from a laptop, you probably couldn't do a live sports channel that way, but if you were running a, a fairly straightforward niche channel, you can run it from a laptop. Um, and the average viewer, and I hate myself for saying this because I'm all about quality, but your average viewer probably wouldn't notice much difference in the technical quality. Um, so I think that's the, the, the big thing. And obviously within that, you sort of you come into the cloud and the fact that you don't have to have all your content on tapes or even on hard drives nearby, you can run it from the cloud. Um, so those, that's probably one of the biggest things if you're looking at the very high level view. Obviously, there's lots of smaller elements within uh, different departments that have changed around like using AI, um, all those sort of things. But yeah, technology yeah. has been the biggest changer. But what we do hasn't changed. It's just technology mm. lets us do it differently. Yeah, and, and to think sort of what now, you know, you can download I don't know, OBS for free and plug it into Twitch and, you know, yes, it's basic, but compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago, that's absolutely massive. So, yeah, massive, a massive change. Um, and again, from that, what, what sort of lessons have you learned throughout your career that you're keen to pass on to your teams now? What sort of insights do you tend to try and, you know, drill into them when they, when they work with you? I think linking back to the technology, always start with the problem and then work backwards to the solution because it's so amazing you go to ibc or nab or at the moment ise is on and you get um, beguiled by the latest technology oh here's the latest 8k screen or here's the latest whatever it might be um and you come back or people come back and they say here's this latest thing let's um how do we put it into our workflow and then that you end up with a really weird sort of amalgam of things that sort of it's like a, something that grows legs yeah whereas actually if you start from whatever it might be we want to put subtitles onto this program but we want to find a way of making them more accurate or we want to do them quicker or we want to um, do them uh, using uh, fewer people or whatever the the problem might be start with the problem and yeah. then come up with a solution um, that that applies. I think I can't think of a situation where that wouldn't apply ever. 
um, be it in the TV industry or in your home life or whatever it is. So sometimes if you, if I would advise my, always advise my team, if you're getting stuck with something, just break it down into bite-sized chunks, start with a problem so that it's not a massive mountain and then work incrementally to solve the problem. If you can, obviously, if there's a fire, you just need to run and get out. <laughs> just segment the fire into workable chunks. Exactly. Probably good firefighting, but yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Well, I suppose <laughs> if, you, if you use that, if we carry on with that analogy, if you look at submarines or ships or everything, they have yeah. um, fire, fire doors everywhere. So even the fire analogy, buildings have fire doors for a reason. You contain yeah. the problem in one area, Deal and then it. you work on that area. And I would say that's the same for most most solutions and most things you do in life absolutely perfect wonderful well thank you for giving that in that us that insight uh, so i'll pass back taking four questions on the present and the future oh thanks tim um Stephen, i know that definitely part of the role you you're currently doing has been you've been involved in huge transformational projects actually and, and that's formed a, a part of your career what do you think it takes to make a transformational project successful I think it takes vision. You need to know what you're trying to transform to and why, um, because it's no use just saying, oh, we need to transform the business. Well, that's going back to my coming up with the um, problem before the solution and et cetera. So I think you have to have vision. So you have to work with a, a team at board level and at operational level who share the yeah. same vision. So that's really important. And then, taking people through the change because transformation is just a longer word of change and people generally don't like change especially in the technology side because sometimes people think oh we're going to automate this that means my job is on the line yeah. actually genuinely saying to people that the, your job isn't on the line it's quite rare you can because people's jobs might be on the line for 100 million reasons but generally it's not because of technology the, the idea usually and what i did in my in my current role i've come in and we weren't using as much technology as we should so people on my team were still using paper to take orders and they were still using email exchanges with clients and they were doing <clears throat> really quite sometimes mundane tasks that were really important so by saying to them no what we want to do is let's automate some of that so you don't have to retype the same order number onto three different systems let's get it on one system and what that means is, in, in the current case, I was able to launch an access services department by saying to the team that were doing this work before, right, who wants to do something different? Who wants to run a subtitling department? And just bring them across so they're not, no longer doing the mundane work. Yeah. Computers deal with that. Then they've learned that some people learned how to do subtitling. And the majority of that was growing people internally. I've, I've built a media services team from a team that was um traditionally called av which I, I thought was going to be they're going to take overhead projectors into rooms <laughs> they're the people who now run our aws cloud-based infrastructure and deal with all the coding and decoding and codecs and problem solving for clients then the other side of it is the more production facing things they've learned how to do subtitling what subtitles are how they work mm -hmm. which is a natural extension <clears throat> excuse me natural extension of what we did from transcription so I would like to say that people's jobs have got more interesting at the same time the business has grown. Then we moved into localization using the same principles. By then, we were growing so much, I actually needed to bring new people in as well as keeping the old people, the former people. So 
I think that's the, the key thing. Transformation is that having the vision and taking the team on the journey with you, giving them opportunities and listening to what they've got to say, because it's easy to look at it from afar and say, oh, why don't we do this? And then it just takes one person on the team to say, oh, you know, the reason we do that is because blah, blah, blah. And you think, oh, right. Okay. That makes sense. So it's don't do change for change's sake and always listen to the people who are doing the work at the coal face. Yeah. And it's so much of this industry in particular, but any business, I think it, it's about people. It, it's people that make, and it's people and it's relationships. Um, even before the tech, actually, which Absolutely. when you break it down, which is funny for tech industry, but it's true. And if you can get people bought into the mission, excited with drive, they'll follow you anywhere, actually. And if you invest in them, they'll, they'll give you back. Absolutely. Yeah. We, as you say, we're a, a tech enabled industry, I would say. Um, and as long as the tech is doing what we need to do, most of what we are achieving if you think about it, it's all about the audience, really, for what we do, whether we're at the very fast at fur end with cameras and virtual production or the delivery distribution end. What we're actually doing is telling stories, informing people, and sounding like Wreath now, but educate, inform, and entertain. That's what we're doing. All we're doing with the technology is making, making that better, making like cameras can get us to go into much smaller, different places than we otherwise could. Look at dramas. Um, how many dramas do you see now who use a drone? Whereas in the old days, they would either not be able to do that to tell the story, or they have to have a helicopter and cost a million pounds a day or whatever. So technology is enabling storytelling and enabling people to enjoy content in ways they otherwise wouldn't have done. But the principles behind it are all the same. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there, you know, don't just have change for change's sake. Obviously, there's been this huge explosion of media brands around streaming. There are so many players in the industry, be it streamers, subscription platforms, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you think that we've still got a lot of consolidation that's going to happen within the industry? And, and if so, what do you think that will look like? I think the answer to that is yes and no. I think consolidation will happen in some ways. There's lots of big players and some of them are being more successful than others. But mm -hmm. I think technology is leveling the playing field a little bit. There's like fast channels now. Everyone talks about the death of linear TV. Um, yeah. But what, what is linear TV? In the old days, that was a proxy for proper TV or public service TV. But linear TV, it's just somebody else choosing what programs are going to go on air and somebody else playing them out in the right order. That is just the same as a fast channel, really. Fast channel is just linear TV, but delivered over the internet. So I think the terms linear TV might disappear. Um, so saying the death of linear TV, I don't think it's true because fast channels are one of the fastest growing areas anyway. I think where we are going to see things change it's around how things are delivered. Tim Davey, obviously, he's made some comments from the BBC's perspective. Um, so we might see the uh, transmitter towers turned off, maybe not quite in 2027, but between 27 and 37, I think we're going to see the transmitter towers and maybe some of the satellites turned off. Everyone's going to an internet delivery. But we're still going to have to have, I believe, linear-esque television. Um, yeah. And linear people, over IP sort of a linear over IP because still however you watch stuff 
people, some people live their lives or the, the rhythm of their lives. They live it by, by linear TV. How many people yeah. listening to this say to their kids, right, you can watch whatever program, you can watch EastEnders and then you have to go to bed or you can watch Thomas the Tank Engine and then you're going to have lunch. It's sort of, there's a, a, a rhythm that people use linear TV for. So I think mm. that will stay for a while. But I think with the likes of iPlayer and ITVX and all the streamers, what is what are you looking at? If you imagine iPlayer turned into a, a playlist, because all the assets, all the BBC's assets are on the cloud and available, and you go in and you look for them and you you play what you want to play, what you want to play it. So you could just send a schedule to yeah. personalize schedule to your your iPlayer account so that it, when you turn it on, it, it knows that it's six o'clock at night. So you want to watch the news and then at seven o'clock, it kicks in with the playlist that it knows you like and just makes it look like linear TV, but absolutely uber personalized to you. And that's just using all the same tech. You'll find when we talk, I have quite, I quite enjoy the word naive because <laughs> I find when, when you talk to technologists and I'm not a technologist, when you talk to them, because they are so bright and they know so much about the detail, quite often that can blind some of them. They, if you say, if I said something like, oh, why don't we just send a, a playlist to everyone's uh, iPlayer account and same for ITVX, and then it just looks like this, they go into, oh, yeah, but the CDN this and the such and such that, and, and how would this, and they know how complicated it would be to do. So they, they start sometimes, some of, some of them start with thinking, oh, that'd be too difficult, it goes on the too difficult pile. Mm -hmm. um, where actually when you come up with some crazy naive ideas, 90% of them might be rubbish, but the odd one might be okay. And it might change, change how we do things. Absolutely. Talking, talking of, of change, I'm going to pass over to, to Tim for our, our topic that matters today, which is cloud transformation in media. Tim. Yes, yes. yes. So we, we pick a, a topic each week, the sort of first mm. list of the guests. And we, we've already touched on this one a few times, which, which makes sense given your, your background. But question we would like to ask about sort of, you know, cloud and, and SaaS transformation, a bit of a two-parter, you know, it. It, has, it is not a 100% new technology. Cloud-based solutions, SaaS solutions, that is not new particularly anymore, but there just seems to be more and more discussion. Every NAB, every IBC, it's always a talking point there. So what are your thoughts on why there's kind of so much discussion about it right now? And sort of second part of that, why do you think you know, cloud and SaaS-based platforms are, are proving so attractive and so interesting to, to the broadcast and media space? Well, I think the... The answer is a cloud is it's like oxygen, isn't it? It's just there now. The cloud isn't really a thing. And what is the cloud? It's just uh, people have said this before me. It's just someone else's data center. So the cloud yeah. is really a, an odd concept anyway. Um, the reason why SaaS or other people's software sitting on the cloud effectively um, is so interesting for broadcasters is because things are changing so quickly. We've talked about change before. And I mentioned earlier on, the old days, you'd, you'd build a broadcast center and you'd spend millions of pounds. So you'd have to write off the capital investment in that over five or 10 years even. So if you ask somebody nowadays, what is your business going to be doing in five years? They'll throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, we don't know what they're going to be doing next year, let alone five years. So being able to license software that can do what a lot of that capital did many years ago, I think that's one of the main reasons. And you can pick best of breed. If you want to, um, I don't know, launch a live channel 
that's going to last for six months because it's a particular sport that's happening you launch it it runs for six months and then you turn it down and then somebody else some other organization then utilizes that cloud technology that those servers or those hard drives or whatever so it, it that's why it's so attractive to the industry now and you talked about brands um most big companies are are not just brands they're media brands they mm. have they have youtube channels they are they are broadcasters look at the likes of I don't know Red Bull are obviously the big the big example of that. But Burberry, they've I think I read somewhere the other day Burberry have got a bigger man than most broadcasters because they've got so much content they need to distribute worldwide to both their customers and their stores. So I think every big company is a brand and now a media brand. Perfect. And actually, there's kind of a, 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 a counterpoint to that, and I'm genuinely interested in sort of what your what your thoughts are, given that you are in the business of you know, transformation, cloud and SaaS transformation. Are there sort of, are there limitations that you see to that shift towards there and kind of areas where maybe, you know, right now and, and for the next few years, it's not right to do a big transformation over to like a cloud and a SaaS based system where it actually would be better to hold on to, to an older system? Again, I think you need to look at the problem you're trying to solve. Um, so if, you, if, you're, if you're BBC, say, use that as an example, and imagine, you were having 20 million viewers watching the terrestrial service all day, every day, then actually that's a really good and efficient way of distributing that content to 20 million people. Hmm. That's not the reality anymore. You might have the odd show that gets four or five million, six million like traitors. Um, so you get six million people watching BBC at that point. But BBC two at three in the morning, you might have hmm. 10,000 people. The transmitter power being used is exactly the same. They don't turn the transmitters off anymore. They leave them on. So I yeah. think you, you look at the problem. But I think the main, the way it needs to be looked at now, we've, we've know that the technology is there. We can do almost anything with technology, but sustainability of, and the power use of that, I think is now going to be the focus. I think, well, I would like the focus to move away from um, 2K becomes 4K, 4K becomes 8K, it becomes HDR, blah, blah, blah. I would personally like to see, let's halt that for a moment because the quality is as good as it needs to be for what we're doing at the moment. And there are, there are some really scary statistics. If everyone, if you, if you look around, you can search these. But um, I was at a DTG conference the other day and the, the stat around power usage came up. And it's hmm. incredible that I think everyone agrees, all the people who know better, they agree that between one and 2% of all the world's energy is used for streaming TV. Yeah. Wow. Which when you let that sink in for a bit, that's, you say one to 2%, that's not much, is it? But that, that's the same as all the aviation industry around the world put together. Yeah. So that's bad enough. So that's, that's, and there's a company, there's an outfit, look at it on the internet, greening for streaming. So they've got lots of interesting details there. The other scary statistic, and then the more technical people listening will, will get this, for streaming TV, it's, it's developed largely on a just-in-case basis. So just in case I want to go and switch Netflix on and watch this, that, that is being delivered, maybe not to my home, but it's being delivered to the CDN up the road. Hmm. And I'm sitting here talking to you guys, I'm not watching or comp compile or watching that so it's stuff. 
So there was another statistic around 90% of all the packets that are generated to make streaming TV work go unconsumed. Yeah. So if one to two percent of all the world's power is used for streaming TV, and now this is where the naivety comes in. I know there's probably people out there go, oh, that's not right because, but the principles are mm. say say it's just one percent, one percent of all the world's power used for streaming TV, and then ninety percent of that is wasted. It's yeah. just not used. We have to do something about that. And yeah. and we have to make the business case. And I would love, again, naive alert coming. I would love Netflix. Can Netflix save the planet would be what I would say. If you imagine you had a big dial on your Netflix front end, on your user interface, that just said, let's just turn down, not the quality or anything, the amount I want to pay right now for watching Netflix. So Netflix subscription, if I, if I turn it down and say, I don't want to watch um, um, Friends reruns in HD, I just want to watch it at a lower bit rate, then I'm going to save money because TV sets, the higher, if you watch a TV and it's switched on to HDR mode, I think it's four times as much electricity it can put, uh, takes in the house. Hmm. So if you turn that down, you save money on your electricity bill. But if you turn that down, Netflix save money on their data center processing. So if they, I don't know, if they, if they gave viewers a dividend, even a 50% of the amount of money that they saved by you turning that down, their margins are going to go up and everyone's subscription price will come down. Or with fast channels, they could give dividends. They could say, we'll give you um, some ad-free time if you turn it down a bit. Now that, again, naivety. There's probably loads of different technical reasons why that can't happen. And again, certainly getting well beyond my understanding. I know that codecs are needing to become more and more efficient. Mm -hmm. So if you end up bringing all that together, turn down the quality that you don't need, save some money on electricity, get the codecs to be more efficient, get the software to understand that I'm sitting here talking to you on this podcast, not in my front room or on my phone watching it so don't yeah. deliver it to me live live sport yeah maybe you need to do that but a movie I, if i'm prepared to wait i don't know you imagine hideous three minutes to buffer a movie um that's enough to go and make a cup of tea or whatever i don't walk into a pizza express and expect my precise pizza to be ready for me to pick up and walk out the store with i'm prepared to tell them what i want and they say, I'll oh, come back in 10 minutes and it'll be ready. You just imagine, I'd love somebody to do the stats of Netflix to do a, a trial. How is hmm. that going to work? How much energy? And if that worked all around the world and we managed to save, I don't know, 0.1% of the 1% the that is wasted, that, that, that will do our bit. So, yeah. sorry. And if you could I'll get yeah. off my hobby. No, no, no. No, 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 it's interesting because again, yeah, it's a technical challenge and then it's a behavioral challenge of, you know, the first group of people is like, right, you know, you used to click on it and it would be immediate. Now it's going to be three minutes. There would be lots of people who would go onto Twitter and say, well, in which case I'll never watch it ever, but actual in the real world behaviorally after a month and everyone's like, well, yeah, that's fine. You know, we were, we were fine having to go to Blockbuster for ages. We thought that was great. Yeah. Now we couldn't imagine it. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, there is. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And I'll, I'll just ask one more question on 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 this topic, actually. And it was, it was related to something you mentioned earlier about being problem led rather than solutions led. When it comes to the industry, do you feel that currently the the, the feeling is 
you know, customers are saying we have this issue and providers are coming in and providing solutions to that? Or do you feel it's a little bit more like people coming out with a new technology and a, you know, a solution in search of a problem rather than the other way around? I, I think it's getting better. I think there's still, you go into the tech shows, you still see the latest big thing in uh, virtual production with all these LED volumes. And has anyone done the measurement is with all the power it takes to run a studio of LED volumes, how does that compare with uh, driving some trucks to the real location? Now, yeah. logically, you'd think the LED volumes must be more efficient because you've got fewer people traveling around. But has anyone ever done the sums? So I think yeah. where people should focus is measurement mm. because a lot of this, I, I've quoted some stats and I, from like, Ofcom have said things and screening for streaming and World Bank have said lots of these things, but let's measure things. Let's actually measure how much we consume so that nobody can argue the one or two percent or there's a real number. Um, so I think problems uh, around measurement and problems around making the devices consumer aware, I think is the technical term, isn't it? Making sure those problems are being solved. Now, some uh, clients are moving faster than others. I know people like the BBC in the UK there for their RFPs when they request prices from suppliers. They put some things in there now around um, sustainability. They expect to need, know what their suppliers, because obviously their suppliers contribute to their carbon footprint and they've got to report on that, um, as well as the other one's diversity and inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the big players are leading the way. And then it will just become, it should just become normal that you, you use as little power to generate the service you need. You treat it like it's your own power, like in the house. You would, if you walk around, you don't put all the lights on all the time and boil six yeah, kettles at the same running thing. in the driveway, you know. It's, yeah, it feels like as an industry, we sort of have been doing that quite a lot just to drive the quality. But so let's, let's turn the lights off when we need yeah. to. Leave them on in the room we're in, but turn all the other ones off. Who, there's no downside to that. Yeah, absolutely. Lovely. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm glad yeah, that turned into such a, yeah, <laughs> a nice deep discussion. Um, we'll, we'll move on, though, for the sake of time, if nothing else, um, to the topic of diversity. Tegan. Yeah, Stephen, you're um, a mentor for RISE and you're also on, on the board for RISE for those that uh, those few that might not know about RISE out there. RISE is a group that, that works to improve gender diversity in the industry. Why are organisations such as RISE so important and still needed in 2023? Yeah, they, they really shouldn't be. That's the thing. Yeah. And I suppose if it sounds awful, but if when RISE becomes the success it needs to be, it's probably going to be the victim of its own success. We shouldn't need RISE, um, but we still do. Um, it, it, go, it ranges from the very simple thing that it's the right thing to do. 100% of the population should have 100% of the opportunities, and that hasn't always been the case in the broadcast industry. But putting it back to the business case, um, there's a skill, we know there's a skill shortage in certain areas of the TV industry. We know that. I mean, I think the Production Managers Association said recently that 100% um, of their members are booked up for the next six months. Um, so if you come along wanting to make a movie or do something that needs a production manager, you're either going to have to pay a lot more money and wrestle one of the ones already booked into another so it gets messy so we're short of people um and if we're short of people and 50 percent of the population are underrepresented in the industry i 
women, then the obvious solution is make sure they get represented. Um, and that starts bizarrely very, very, very young. So it starts probably eight, nine, 10, because when, when you're at school and you start, you asked me at the very beginning, what did I want to be? And I said, a vet. That was when I was eight, nine, 10. I wanted to be a vet. So if, if I'd at that stage had the opportunity to go and work in a, or do work experience in a vet practice or something, and then uh, was advised about the exams I needed to take and the courses, and that I'd probably be better off going to do biology and chemistry, not geography and history, then when I come to make a decision, I've made the decision, don't have to be a vet, but I know that I've been guided along the right path so that when it comes to it, it's like, oh, that's good. You've done chemistry and biology. Yeah, of course you could be a vet. And I think the same thing is true for the, our industry. So you get eight, nine, 10 year olds to understand, I don't know what a broadcast engineer is. I mean, nobody ever stands up at a school assembly and says, I want to be a broadcast engineer. Maybe a, a fire officer, a police officer, a vet, a train driver. I don't know what people, probably a, a, a YouTube influencer or a game developer or something, whatever it is. Badly, these days. yes. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we can um, have organizations that help with that. And that's what RISE does. It goes into schools. And you see people, um, Carrie, who's the managing director of RISE, she's got some lovely letters from eight, nine, 10 year olds saying, literally sometimes quite scrawly letters saying i didn't even know what a broadcast engineer is but now i want to be one so then they know that as they go through the rest of the schooling they get to the 15 and 16 year old age and they know where they can go so there's a place for them because the other problem at the moment is lots of the really well regarded university courses are finding it really difficult to get any applicants at all but particularly female applicants yeah. so uh, and that's outrageous really yeah so yeah. encouraging uh, encouraging women in the industry is i'm i'm really lucky because i mentioned channel four before when i worked at channel four and that was back a long time ago that was in the 90s it was even then very diverse gender diversity you didn't even think about in the old days because it was quite heavy maintenance on some of the massive machines the maintenance team was comprised probably 50 50 men and female i mean wow. there, there was no this is the smelly engineers who live in this room um <laughs> it was it was very diverse and it wasn't done to tick a box it wasn't nobody was doing it because they thought oh, we better do this it was just they had the best people doing the job um and sometimes uh, it's probably not the right thing to say now but remember back in the day there was one of the one of the maintenance engineers who was female and about five foot tall, etc., and really tiny. And she was always the person who got to do some of the more complicated stuff because she could get her hands into some of the areas on these big machines that other people couldn't. So it was just she was being play, playing to her strengths. She could sort these things out rather than having to take it all apart. So there were things like that. So I've been lucky in that respect. Um, but yeah, it just needs needs to happen. And I, being a mentor. Uh, well, what can I say? I learn as much from the mentees as I'm sure they learn from me. Um, and I met some amazing people. Um, mm -hmm. And just the, the people who get involved in RISE, either as mentees or mentors or sponsors, they, I haven't heard anyone say a bad thing about it. Sponsors love it. They, they get access to 
uh, areas that they couldn't the pr around it is amazing so from a business case it works really well for them the mentees it's great for and as a mentor probably shouldn't say it but i i sort of get to know all these mentees so in my head if i'm suddenly thinking oh we need to launch a new department and then obviously i'm going to talk to some of the recruitment agencies because that's what recruitment agencies do we were, wait, we were waiting for that <laughs> yeah exactly and just let me know where to send the send the invoice but yeah, yeah. in, in all seriousness uh, fantastic um I, I know i could think if somebody says oh do you know anyone who'd be good as a um a vr a technologist I, I can think of at least three people who I, i've either met through rise yeah. or have mentored so it, it's it's good for everybody so yeah. um I was, like I, you throw a stone into a river isn't it and it and the ripple effect just gets bigger and bigger um you just think it's one pebble but actually it, it's so much more than that yeah absolutely and one thing i would say about rise is yes all the mentees are it's because it, it's to grow female representation in the industry so all the all the mentees across all the individual chapters around the world because it's grown that pebble is now in the, in the north yeah. america and asia etc um but there's nothing to stop any gender joining rise you just go on the website you could just just sign up um and i'm an example i'm male i'm a mentor um and i think in a way that sounds a bit odd but i'm hopefully a role model for other people who are potentially the problem demographics of white middle-aged males the fact i'm involved in rise and can stand up on the advisory board and say we should do this it makes hopefully other guys think oh it's not just for women it's we can get involved too and you can see that now there's some amazing guys involved in rise so don't be afraid don't think rise is just for women it's like it's a, it's a really good organization to be part of yeah rise no. Over. no 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 um i we have to keep talking and turning our talking into action for these things um until we've done ourselves out of a job um so please do not apologize <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody who um was maybe struggling with feeling like they're somebody you know they're in that diversity uh group be that gender ethnicity religion and, and was struggling what what advice would you give out to that person i i would say uh, rise would be an obvious one there are probably other organizations as well um just fine just keep going be mm. be very sort of focused and it's easy to say that don't take no for an answer um make sure that you find find a way in and that's one thing i notice particularly with rise is that the people who have got themselves as mentees they've they've really pushed i mean in the early days of rise quite a lot of the people who applied would then become mentees because it was a smaller number of people who knew about it now it's quite competitive i think last year i think 100 people in the uk applied and there's 25 places so um make sure you find a way to meet the mentors um, and other mentees join rise get on linkedin be active on linkedin it's, and it's tough when you're very early in your career because it's sort of weird when people say when you're leaving um whatever training you've done it's whether it's school or one of the technical colleges or you've done t levels whatever it might be for somebody to say i'll oh, send us your cv yeah. it's it's really weird isn't it because you, cv is a work experience record so 
LinkedIn is a proxy for that. So get on LinkedIn, have an opinion, find the people who you think um, you want to be like, find role models. There's plenty of places on, going back to, right back to the technology side, isn't it? Because LinkedIn is effectively a SaaS platform, isn't it? So, um, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Facebook, um, even Facebook, uh, TikTok, all these other things. Find somebody as a role model or find, uh, yeah, the Royal Television Society is another good one. Um, they have student bursaries available and they have a mentor scheme as well. So just be tenacious and that will get you places. And nowadays, it's, I suppose in the old days, you, you'd get accused of, oh, it's not, not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and that used to be, um, so, oh, if, if your parents used to work for the BBC, then you're just a quiet word here and you'd go and work for the BBC. And that then, and not singling out the BBC, that happens the same everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But it sort of, you'd end up, um, people would always recruit people like themselves. So that had a problem around both diversity in terms of social background as well. So there's all that yeah. sort of things. Whereas now, I think it is true. It, it is what you know, as well as who you know, but what you know, um, is equal to who you know and who you know is LinkedIn or Facebook or TikTok, your social media. You can know people who are well outside your socioeconomic group or um, ethnic group, whatever. You can find reach people. Out. You can reach, reach out. out. Yeah. And what's the worst that can happen on LinkedIn? If, if you get, uh, well, the worst that happens on LinkedIn, I get lots of people saying, oh, I want to sell you some stuff. Can I connect with you? Um, and I'm quite glad that some of them are a bit direct about it but quite a lot of the time i'll have um linkedin messages from people saying oh i'm i'm at this university or i've just started in this job and i don't know how to get in and i notice you do this and how did you so if i get a message like that i'm almost certainly going to respond um because what's the downside i might not do it immediately but there's no downside and yeah. and that's the future people want to help that it's a yeah. friendly industry people want to help and, and people want to everyone and also most people i speak with we've all had a leg up somewhere and we yeah. want to pass that on and we want to pass that forwards um so no that that's wonderful um thank you so much we um could continue that conversation for hours but tim i'm gonna i'm gonna pass back over to you no lovely uh, so yes we're gonna we're gonna take it a little bit more personal now and and dig into you a little um so our first question on on that side would be uh, can you tell us what your perfect weekend looks like oh i think it would be if it's in the winter i think it would be a group of friends around the, the dining table at home i quite like cooking and i quite like introducing different friends together like a little petri dish because we've got friends because yeah. you could bring all people industry friends together and you'd end up talking about SaaS platforms and cloud-based stuff and rise and stuff it'd be interesting but it wouldn't be very interesting and I, we've got friends who like we've got ranging from chocolate makers uh potters um travel agents uh the whole so you get those round the table and then the travel agents talk to the chocolate people and say you should make a chocolate about tokyo and then they're going <laughs> so you end up with these amazing conversations so in the winter that's that's what i quite like in the summer or the spring um we're really fortunate we live in a little village and there's only one commercial outlet in the village and it's a pub on the riverside mm. and shockingly the only way of getting to the riverside walk is by going almost through the pub garden 
That's terrible so, for them. They which must, is terrible, they must really. really hurt their business. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the dogs know their way to the pub, and I think they've got a better social <laughs> life than we have because we'll sit outside and all the other dogs will come along. And uh, so that, yeah, nice riverside walk down to the pub. This pub does nice food as well. So that's very my, nice. My answer to that one. Very nice. Very nice. And uh, Tegan, let's uh, let's go to the quick fire round then. Wonderful. So um, I'm going to dive straight into this. You're going to have to think on your feet, um, but straight away, city or country? Country. Plane or train? Train. Same. Uh, what was the last movie you watched? Ooh. Oh, em embarrassingly, it was on the TV, No Time to Die. Oh, it was a great film. But I have yeah. been recommended by a friend just last week um, to see um, Olivia Coleman's new one, uh, Empire of Light. So I'm going to go and see that in the cinema nearby. So uh, like cinema I love experience. Olivia Coleman. That would be good. Let me know how it is. I will. Um, Thank you. Mountain peaks or bright sunny beaches? Mountain peaks. Window or aisle seat? Aisle. Window, oh sorry, morning or evening? Evening. This is going to be hard for you. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Uh, well, if I can allow it to be cuisine, one cuisine, Japanese. Yeah, I'll just give you that. Japanese. Oh, Japanese. Nice. Um, where's your family vacation? Where's your favorite vacation spot? Vancouver Island. I thought you oh, were going to say that. Oh, it's good. Yeah, you've I've been, been as well, haven't oh, you? Yep. Souk, Souk Harbour House Hotel, little cabin on the beach, watching the sea otters fly uh, run around the beach. So apart from that, nothing, nothing to say for it. But no, no amazing. Yeah, I can recommend it. <laughs> and if, if you ever go to Vancouver Island, top tip. Don't fly to Vancouver, fly to Seattle and then take the ferry up to Vancouver to Victoria because you get a free whale watching trip for three hours. Um, and it's Seattle's a much nicer place airport wise than Vancouver. Top tip. There you go. For free, you can have that. Yeah. Um, cinema or theatre? Ooh, theatre. Theatre. Self-catering or all-inclusive? Self-catering. And espresso or latte? Latte all day long. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Tim, I'm going to pass over to you for a final question and to round things off for us. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, yeah, so we ask the same question, the same final question to everybody that comes on the podcast, uh, and that is what one piece of advice would you give to someone who is entering the industry today? Say yes. And that when I say that is say yes to opportunities. Don't be afraid if if you if you've decided that you want to be I, I don't know a, a QC operator or a camera operator and somebody comes along and says do you want to do sound, just say yes say yeah because once you're in, you can grow from within so as long as it's reasonable and the respectful request etc just say just say yes to anything that is in the same wheelhouse and that's amazing what you can do. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for, for coming and, and giving us your time and your thoughts. Um, we'll have to keep talking over, over a meal in a pub at some point soon, but it's been a pleasure and thank you so much. No, it's been lovely to meet you and thanks for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.nuco-group.com. That's N-E-U-C-O-group.com. -E